0: Two verses this morning, uh, verse 16 and 17, where James writes, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How you think about a person colors how you view a gift that they would give you. Let me give you an example. If a friend who is discipling you and a real encouragement in your life and was, was caring for your, your soul and, and had demonstrated a pattern of leadership in his life, if he were to give you a book called you know 10 Essential Steps to Being a Better Leader, you would probably thank him for it and you would read it and you would appreciate that, that gift. But if that same book, 10 Ways to Become a Better Leader, was given to you by, say, your mother-in-law, It might change your perception of the gift, right? Like, what are you trying to say, exactly? (laughs) You know, if your lawn company gave you a bag of grass seed and a thing of of weed killer to thank you for for being a a loyal member for many years, you would probably thank them, and you would probably use it. But if your kind of argumentative neighbor gave you the same gift. a bag of grass seed and some weed killer, they rang your doorbell and handed it to you, you would probably say, hey, mind your own business, okay? <laughs> Take care of your own yard over there. <laughs> if uh, you get a text message on Saturday afternoon asking, hey, would you do baptisms tomorrow? You'd say, yeah, thanks, I'd love to. No greater joy I have. And then you show up at the eight o'clock service and they say, oh, but the, the heater wasn't on and the water's really cold. <laughs> You see how that could color your perception of Pastor Alex. So, just I'm not saying it should. I'm just saying it's, it's possible that it could. How you see someone colors your perception of the gift that they give you. So that's what James is dealing with here in James 1, verse 16, where he's saying, do not be deceived. And then he's going to tell you, he's going to remind you here that everything God does is good. Everything God gives you is good. And he wants to remind you of the nature of God and of his character so that you rightly understand the gifts that he's giving you. This verse is gonna teach you two critical truths that will help you in times of trials. First, that God is good. And second, that God does not change. God is good and God does not change. Now those two truths may seem elementary to us now. After all, there's even a, a song or a little saying you teach kids. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. good. I mean it's so simple, right? And so how how hard can this be? But yeah, it's easy to teach kids, but when trials come to you, suddenly you start singing in a different tune. <laughs> it's so easy to forget that God is good. And the context here is most certainly trials. Remember back up in verse 2. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. And that phrase, my brothers, is repeated down in verse 16, where he's saying, do not be deceived, my brothers. So verse 2, you're supposed to count it joy when you find trials. Verse 16, don't be deceived in doubting the goodness of God in those trials. In other words, the trials that you encounter are from the hand of a loving father who is sending them your way to spiritually strengthen you to do, as verse 3 says, to test your faith to produce steadfastness. Or verse four, steadfastness will have its full effect so you can be perfect or mature, complete, lacking in nothing. You're supposed to ask God for wisdom in verse five, how to get through trials. You're not supposed to doubt that God is at work and that he's good through this, these trials. Then in verse 12, you're supposed to remain steadfast, recognizing it's a blessing. So you're rejoicing and you're receiving it as a blessing. That's your, how you're supposed to receive trials. You're supposed to receive them Understanding that God who is sending them is good and he's not varying his character through the trial. But the truth is that oftentimes when difficulties come, people begin to question God's goodness. Some people will question his sovereignty and say, oh, God's not actually in control of this. He's not, God doesn't have anything to do with this. In my mind, God just controls these good things, uh, these bad things God has nothing to do with. Um, I, I think that's somewhat of a, a superficial understanding of God, and it's, it's more in line with Job's wife, remember, who said, uh, why don't you, you know, curse God for this and, and just die? And remember, Job said, are you only supposed to receive good from God and not evil or wicked or, or cursing as well? In other words, they're all from the hand of God and you understand that God doesn't curse or he doesn't send sin. What God does, as you see with the book of Job, is he sends trials to test your faith and cause you to grow and be mature. So as I mentioned, one response to trials is to just say, well, God not, has nothing to do with these and I don't think that's gonna hold up very long. But another response, I think the one we're more prone to in trials is to question that God is actually doing something with it. Yeah, God's in control, but how do I know that it is actually a good thing he's doing? How do I know that he's actually at work in this? Yes, I know he's sovereign, but is he still good? And so what James says in verse 16 is don't let your heart wander from that truth. That phrase be deceived, the the word for deceived, it's a word that's used for a wandering star. It's used in Jude. He describes false teachers as those that have wandered from their orbit. They used to be orbiting in the right way and they've just drifted away. They've wandered away somewhere. And so so James says, don't let your heart wander from the truth that God is good. The goodness of God is kind of the sun here in the solar system that should anchor you as you orbit around it. But as you drift, you begin to question God's goodness. And so James says, don't be deceived. Don't let your heart wander away from these truths that God is good and that he doesn't change. And this is what happened in Eve's heart, isn't it? Satan came to Eve to deceive her in the garden and asked her, did God really say? And you remember Eve's response. Eve's response was a little window to her soul and you see that her heart had already started to wander. She had already allowed a negative view of God, a questioning of God's goodness, to color how she received the the gift of God's commands not to eat the fruit. Remember she told Satan, he told us not to eat of it or even touch it which God did not say. This is something that she had added. You're you're looking into her heart, and you're seeing a window into Eve's heart here that she was doubting the goodness of God. And that doubting of God's goodness allowed her heart to wander from the truth, which allowed sin to take over her heart. And this is so often the case in times of trial, where people doubt that God is in charge. They doubt that he is good. They doubt that he is at work in the trial. And what that produces Generally, it's a wandering from the truth that invites sin, that invites compromise, that invites being angry with God, that invites uh, tangling with God, or invites a justification for sinning in your own life, saying, After all, of course I can sin, God's putting me through this. And that's what James dealt with earlier, back up in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, he's being tempted by God, because God doesn't make you sin, you make yourself sin. So let's review here. If the great temptation of the atheist is unbelief, the great temptation of the believer is wrong belief or disbelief, specifically in these two areas, that God is good and that God doesn't change. Let's tackle the first one first. God is good. That's the first point James is driving home here. In a time of trial, remember that God is good. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That word gift here, it's only used uh, one other place in the New Testament, and that's in in Romans 5 to describe the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and then the faith that comes, uh, and the new life that comes through faith in the gospel. That's the free gift. Adam brought uh, sin into the world by his disobedience. Jesus brings salvation into the world by his obedience. The free gift, Paul says in Romans 5, is not like the trespass. In other words, Jesus' coming is different than Adam's disobedience, even though they both affect everybody underneath them. And I think that concept here has to be in your mind when you're getting your mind around trials You're looking at trials through the prism of eternal life, through the prism of the gift of eternal life, saving faith in Jesus Christ. So that's your starting point. You're going through a trial. The prism you're looking through that's coloring your view of the trial has got to be that God has washed away your sins. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's justified you, declares you righteous, and is now at work in your life to bring you to eternal life at the point of death. You have eternal life now through your faith, and he is maturing you and sanctifying you through these trials. That's the grid through which you receive those trials. And that's why James says every good and every perfect gift is from above. The word good and perfect are two important words here. I'm going to do perfect first. The word perfect here, it's the word "telios," mature. He's used it over and over again in chapter 1. He reminded you that trials are given to make you mature, to make you perfect, to cause you to grow up It's a Greek word that means that you're, you know, opposite of adolescence. You're coming out of adolescence into mature adulthood. God is doing, giving you trials to do that in your life, to cause you to grow up. And so recognize that the trials you encounter are given by God for a good purpose, namely for you to grow up, for you to become spiritually mature. But that first phrase, every good gift, that word good, it's a description of who God is. His nature is good. Remember that God is good in and of himself. God is not good because he does good things. Things are good because they come from God. Do you see the difference? And I've said this before, and I don't mind repeating it because I think this is a very important point in, to help you in how you understand God, but this is the, the word picture that, that helped me understand this point. If you take the Ten Commandments, let's just say the Ten Commandments is a description of moral goodness. Don't view God as having the Ten Commandments outside of himself and seeing what goodness is and then doing them, even doing them perfectly. So God is not good because he keeps the Ten Commandments perfectly. In other words, there's no moral law outside of God that God keeps and that's what makes him good. I think that's the way many, many people think. They think, oh, how fortunate is it that we have a good God? It's, it's, it's amazing that we have a God who is, is good in every way. And it's like we won the, the God lottery here. We could have had a bad God. We could have had a wicked God. We could have had a God that was, was evil and mean and, and didn't, uh, it wasn't holy, but phew, we lucked out, we got a good God. Well, not I think that kind of way of thinking about it diminishes God's goodness. At the very least, it raises some basic questions. If there's a standard of goodness that's outside of God, where did that standard come from? Who made that standard? And why isn't that person God? <laughs> I'd rather have the God uh, who made the standard of goodness than a God who just happens to keep it. Fortunately, the Bible does not describe goodness as being outside of God and something that God measures up to. The Bible describes goodness as coming from God. Something is good if it comes from him. The only fountain of goodness is God himself, and that's in James' mind here. Every good gift is from above. That's why James could be so expansive. If something is good, it is from God. You know, directly and indirectly, there are some good things in the world that are brought your way by people that don't know God. The people that, that don't know the God, they can, they can do good things. There's something called common grace in the world, you know, where uh, a law enforcement officer or a soldier in the military or something can do something good and noble, but that good and, and noble act is not in and of themselves. It's something that God allows them to do in the world, even though they don't know God. It makes the world more, more livable. It's still indirectly from God, though. James's point here is that if something is good in any way it's because it has its source in God. It comes from him. Something is only good if it comes from God. And even if it not indirectly, even if I think the best way to say it is something is good if it mirrors God. Even if you're not doing it willingly. I mean you can do something good without knowing it's from God, but it's good because it mirrors something that's from him justice is from God, righteousness is from God, integrity is from God. So people can do just things and and things with integrity without knowing this from God, but it's still indirectly from him because it mirrors his character. Again, think through the the law analogy. Someone says it's wrong to steal and that person turns around and says, but I don't believe in God. I don't believe in absolute right and wrong. Do you get to steal that person's wallet? If I'm a high school teacher at a Christian school and I have a student say, I don't believe in right and wrong and I don't believe in God. And I say, okay, I'm gonna steal your lunch money. (laughs) They're probably going to object. (laughs) To which I would say, why do you object? It's wrong to steal. Who taught you it's wrong to steal? Where did you learn that from? Even the person who denies God knows it is wrong to steal at the very least his own lunch money. Well, where did he learn that from? And that comes from God. That's the law-giving sense. Understand goodness works the same way. If somebody says, oh, this action is good. Well, why is it good? Who taught you it was good? Who told you it was good? It's good if it mirrors God's character. That is the only standard of goodness. For you to rightly understand goodness, you have to understand that God is the measure of goodness. I recently got to hang out with my... Brother, I see him so infrequently. This is the first time we spent time together in, in, in many years, and he's taller than me now. I mean, this is a new thing. He's my younger brother. At my, at my wedding, nay, 11 years ago, he was shorter than me. In 11 years, he's taller than me. I object. <laughs> so my dad has us go back to back and measure ourselves. Thanks, Dad. And my, brothers, my younger brother's taller than me. Now, if we want to measure ourselves against my dad, we, my brother and I don't go back to back with each other. That's not going to tell us how we measure up to my dad. That's not even the right scope of measurement. Understand with goodness, to measure goodness, it has to be measured against God, not each other. If you compare goodness as if it comes from people, and you think, oh, so-and-so is a good person, and because look, there's others around them that are worse people, well, you're measuring against the wrong standard. People are not the measure of goodness. And you, you hear you hear this kind of thinking all the time. Oh, so-and-so is such a good person. Now they don't know the Lord, but they're such a good person. Okay. That's possible. It's possible they're a good person, only in as much as what they're doing mirrors the nature of God. I'll grant that. But notice that they're, you're finding goodness based against God, not against other people. But so quickly we do that. We say, oh, they're so, they're, the world has so many people and that, they're gonna go to heaven because they're a good person. According to who? It's so easy to measure goodness against other people and find people you're better than, isn't it? You don't even have to leave your own family, right? (laughs) You don't even have to start shopping around your neighborhood. You can say, I'm a good person because I'm not like these other people I'm related to. (laughs) That's the wrong standard. God is the source of goodness. He's also the measure of goodness. He is the judge of goodness. He defines what's good. Goodness doesn't define God. God defines goodness. And this is why you're supposed to beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, Jesus says in Matthew 6.1. But God can't help it because everything God does is good and he's always demonstrating it. Only God is good. Remember the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus? and said good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus doesn't even he'll eventually answer the question but he starts with whoa I'm sorry did you say good teacher who told you I was good no one is good Jesus tells him except God and probably the the ruler there just meant it as a little pleasantry like you would say to your dog hey you're a good boy (laughs) good boy You don't actually mean, oh, this is a good dog because he measures up against the standard of God and his integrity. (laughs) If your dog could talk, maybe you pat your dog on the head and say, good boy, your dog would say, who told you I'm good? (laughs) You teach me to play dead and roll over, you know, you're teaching me to lie. Your dog doesn't say that. (laughs) Only God is good. Now, what manifestation do we see of goodness? How do we experience God's goodness? Well, he reveals it to us. That's James' language here. Every good and perfect gift is from above, and it's coming down from the Father of lights. And James just calls us gifts. There's gifts in the world, and they're all from God. Listen, everything in the world can come into two categories. Things that are outside of you, which are going to be used by the Lord to build you up and to mature you, and that would be good in this description, even the trials are things that are from inside of you, which is doubting and the inclination to sin. And that's going to be bad from you. And those are the categories he's dealing with. And James wants you to remember that, that things that are outside of you, that you're going through, they're designed by God for good purposes, because God only sends good things. He only sends good things. And so that's the, the gift, this, this not idea that God is good, and that you have eternal life through faith in his Son. That's the prism. That's the filter by which you view your trials. Everything in the world is seen through that lens. Even you recognize these trials are sent by God to test our faith, but that testing is gonna make us mature and steadfast and endurance and, and hope and all those things. So yes, they're from God and that which produces maturity in Christ is rightly said to be from him. And that's why James wants you to understand that every single action of God flows out of his goodness. It always flows out of his goodness. God only gives good and complete gifts, and he gives them to grow us into good and complete people. Now, notice that this verse describes God as the father of lights, and that's a very unusual phrase. God is the father of lights, and so I just want to pull the car over here and say this phrase is meant to convey God's goodness, and it does it in three ways, at least three ways. Father here is the idea of source, that God is the source of of these good gifts. Not that he's the paternal source of life, but that he's the source of it. That life and light flow from him. That's what it means to call someone father. That your existence flows from him. That he, in a sense, brought you into existence. Well here, James is saying that God is the father of lights. He's the source of goodness. There is no goodness outside of him. There's no other fount I know, the song says. There's only the fountain of God's goodness. He is the Father of light. God's the source of all things. And by the way, this is true even of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the Son to the Father. The Father is the source of Jesus, even in eternity past without a beginning or an end. The scripture teaches that as well. Not only is the Father the source of goodness, but he's also the revealer of it. That's why the word light here, it speaks of the revelation. Father speaks of the source. The word light speaks of the revelatory nature of goodness. That light lets you see things. Light exposes things. People in the sin want to hide their sin. They don't want their sin exposed, but light reveals it. And so God, by being the father of lights, is revealing himself to us. He wants you to see him. He's the father of lights. He causes the light to shine out of darkness and into our hearts so that we can behold the beauty of Christ. This whole idea of goodness coming from God, it's meant to be revelatory. It's meant to reveal God to us. And thirdly, it speaks of his purity. He's not called the father of darkness. Your heart is the father of darkness. As Jesus says in John 8, the devil is the father of lies. God is not the father of lies. God's the father of light. The devil is the father of lies. Your heart doesn't produce light. Your heart produces darkness. God's heart produces light. Don't confuse those two things. Recognize it's a huge evil to say that that sin comes from God. No, the devil is the father of lies. He's the source of lies, and our hearts produce sin. God is the father of light. Darkness, at the very least, is the absence of light. God's not the source of it. He's the source of light that fills the darkness. He's the father of light. So all this is in James' mind when he's pleading with you to understand that God is good. He's the source of good. He's the revealer of good he's demonstrating it to you and good is good (laughs) it's good that we worship the father of lights well that's all fine and well let's go to the second point secondly not only is God good but secondly God doesn't change God doesn't change and this is an essential part of understanding God I mean you might think all right granted God was good it was nice of him to create the world He was good in those first six days. He even says as much. He was good to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was even good to the Lord Jesus Christ. But things have changed now. The world has moved on. How do I know he's still good today? And you might not word it that way, but let me tell you how I often hear people word it. People say things along these lines. When their family is well, they have a good job, and kids are healthy, and marriage is is awesome, and the dog rolls over when he's supposed to and all that, then God is good. But when something is happening with the kids, when the kids are disobeying or wandering into sin or even rejecting you or divorce hits the family or uh, the dog dies, (laughs) you lose your job, now suddenly you start to question the goodness of God. And it's a very, I think, I want to say it this way. It's a very narcissistic approach to viewing God. Because right now, at this moment, right now, there is suffering in the world. There is sin in the world. There are people that are being persecuted for their faith. There is horrible suffering in the world right now. But a person who says, yeah, but my family is is well, so God is good. Amen? I mean, that's so narcissistic. And then, once something happens to you, now, suddenly God has to give an account for all of his actions. I had no problem calling you good, God. Yesterday, when my family was good, I know the world was suffering, but my family was good. But now my family's not, and so God, I want answers. Now I doubt your goodness. is very narcissistic. But if human hearts are prone to anything, they're prone to narcissism, I suppose. And so that's why James pleads with you. Not only do you have to know that God is good, but you have to understand, don't be deceived, God doesn't change in his goodness. He doesn't deviate from it. And that's the second part of verse 17. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's action, his light, never deviates course. Theologians say it this way. They describe God as pure action. And I love that that expression, that God is always acting. He's always illuminating. He's always revealing himself in the most pure, extreme form all the time. There's no dimmer switch on God. He doesn't tone it down. He's always at work. It's strange to view God as sedentary or, or docile or God is immovable or stoic or God is just kind of a rock out there in the universe. Yeah, he worked for six days and now he's, just, he's out there. That's the deistic view of God that, that God made the universe and now he's just turned it over to its own actions. He's just letting it go its way and he's not doing a whole lot. That's a wrong view of God. The right view of God is that he is pure light, pure action, pure work, pure revelation all the time, and it never varies. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't rest from, from illuminating himself. Yes, he made the world in six days, and he put in the, the providential features that will, that will regulate and run the world, and he teaches us this pattern of, of rest. But God himself is always revealing himself. There's no variation in it. There's no shadow that comes across His goodness. The trial you're going through does not represent a shadow in front of God. There might be clouds (laughs) that obscure your view of the goodness of God, but that doesn't mean that God is not revealing his goodness any more than clouds in the sky. Think that the sun turned off. There's just clouds in front of you. Don't worry, they'll burn off. God is always revealing himself. There's no variation in him. There's no shadow in him. His purposes are always going forward. You can cover your eyes and pretend you don't see them, but that doesn't quiet God. He's always at work. And James says, don't be deceived. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. And again, that's a strong command to you to not forget it. And you think, well, why would somebody really say God changes? Yes, people say it all the time. All the time, when when difficult things happen to them, they begin to question that God is actually at work. And James says, you've got to be tuned in here. Of course, God is at work. Every good and perfect gift is from him. All things that are light are from him. And they never get tuned down. Theologians have a name for this. It's called the doctrine of immutability. And I'm not going to quiz you on that later. I might ambush you in the parking lot. What's that doctrine called? Immutability is the answer. Immutability is the doctrine that God doesn't change. The Holman Bible Dictionary says it this way. Immutability means God doesn't change his being, his purposes, or his promises. In other words, what God purposes to do in creation at the moment he speaks the universe into existence, he never varies from that. He's doing it all the time. He never stops being good. He never stops broadcasting his goodness. He never wavers on his promises. He doesn't change his will. His will was perfect and complete at the moment he creates the universe It was perfect and complete and it never varies. It never deviates. God never has to make the U-turn. He never has to double check his plan. He never has to, to make sure he didn't forget something. He's always working and he's always doing it perfectly with no second guessing. This is what Numbers 23 verse 19 says. God is not a man that he would lie. He's not a son of man that he would change his mind. Hasn't he said it and won't he do it? Hasn't he spoken, and won't he fulfill it? Moses is just asking a question. Did God say he would do something? The answer is yes. Hasn't he done it? There's no emergency meeting of the Trinity to come up with a backup plan. There's the council of angels that meet around God, but believe me, that's for the angel's benefit, not for God's. <laughs> Hebrews 6.17, I think, is the best verse in the Bible about this. It says that God desires to show the unchangeable character of his purpose. Hebrews 6.17, God has this desire inside of him to show or reveal or expose the unchangeable character of his purpose. God wants to demonstrate to you that his character is unchangeable. Not just that his character is, but that there's a purpose behind all that he does. He has this purpose and why he made the world, which is to reveal himself. And he doesn't just want you to see that he made the world, he wants you to see that he made the world and he is constant in it, that he does not change. It's not just that God wants you to learn about him, it's that he wants you to learn that he is unchangeable. Now that is only a good thing, my friends, if you're perfect. (laughs) I mean, my wife and I will sometimes meet and talk about long-term plans or long-term goals or things we want to grow in personally or spiritually or with our kids. And how would that conversation go? Just play this out in your mind. You're talking with your husband or your wife and you start by saying, yeah, you know, here's what we're going to work on with our family this year, but let's, let me start this way, babes. And let you just know this, that I'm not changing anything. Like I'm good like I am, honestly. I've, this, is, this is the this is peak me right here. And it's, <laughs> So yes, I have some things that you should work on and that the girls should work on, but me, I'm, I'm good. But that's what God does say, that God is not changing anything. He's good. He's perfect. He's in peak form, and he will always be that way. You know, a perfect person doesn't go to the gym. Every time you go to the gym, it's a public confession that you are lacking something. (laughs) Or perhaps that you have too much of something else. (laughs) You know, God doesn't go to the gym because he doesn't need to change. One of the ways he teaches us that is by comparing himself to things in our world seem like they don't change. Earlier, Dan read from Isaiah, but Psalm 102, verse 25, makes the same point. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, the psalmist says. I mean, the stars are constant in your life. Now, we understand that over time, the light fades, and stars age and and decay. But over the course of your lifetime, they're pretty much constant. (laughs) You can navigate ships by them, (laughs) like they're going to be there in the same spots. And the psalmist says, but you know what? God can remove them in a second, but God doesn't change. You know, you never have to get up in the morning and worry about if gravity is still going to pull you down. It's just a constant in this world. James says, understand this, that God doesn't change. More sure, Psalm 102 says, than even gravity. This is why Malachi 3 verse 6 says this I, Yahweh, do not change. <laughs> I don't change, he says. Hebrews 13 8 lets you know this isn't just true of the Father, it's true of the Son as well. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, of course, Jesus in his incarnation does things in the earth. He takes on a second nature in his incarnation, but the essence of God in His being doesn't change. In his purposes, in his plans, in his action, in his light, it doesn't change. Yesterday, today or forever. And that should comfort us greatly. At the very least, because we know Philippians 1:16, "He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. that God started a work in you and He saved you, and he's going to keep on working. And only God can give good gifts. Thus, the more expansive of our understanding of God's sovereignty, the more expansive we have comfort that God is doing good things in our life. If you have a God that's not sovereign over the things in this world, you will have a difficult time appreciating what James is teaching you here. Because the the severity of what he's teaching you is you have to be reminded that God is good in what he's doing. So if you say, "Okay, God is good in these things that he's doing, and there's these things over here that are not good, and therefore God's not doing them. And that's what's hurting me, and that's what's affecting me. But God's not, I'm under here, and I'm looking at God over there, and I'm under here, but God's not doing these things. Well, then the, the whole admonition here doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's not going to be a bed that supports you at night, is it? <laughs> You're going through trials and you, you lay down in your bed, but I don't know if God's really in control of them. You're going to, it's going to, the floor and your theology will, will fall apart. <laughs> Better to say, God is in control of these things. I can lay down on that bed. And now verse 1, James 1:16 1, and 17 makes sense. God is in control, and you know what? He's also good. And it doesn't feel like it right now. This feels like difficulty. This feels like suffering. I didn't sign up for this. If this was on the shelf, I wouldn't have put it in the cart. I wouldn't have bought this. But it's happening to me. It's been given to me. And so now I need to remind myself that it comes to me from the hand of a loving Father who is doing something. And if God is doing something, you can almost just stop right there and then turn to James 1.17. If God's doing something in your trial, is what he's doing good or bad? Well, it's good, because he's a good God, and he only gives good gifts. Now, let me close with just a couple applications from this. Some different ways these truths should affect you. First of all, it should give you comfort if you're going through a trial. If you're going through a trial, you should take comfort in the fact that, that God is at work and God's good. It sounds cheesy, it sounds superficial. But understand, there is an ocean of truth about the nature and unchangeable purposes of God that's behind it. If God is at work, he is at work for good. Secondly, this should give you a confidence in your faith. It should give you comfort in your trials, and it should give you a confidence in your faith, knowing that your whole life is wrapped up in the goodness of God. You're not going to get to heaven and regret ascribing too many things to God. The mistake that all of us will make in our life is ascribing too little to God, thinking he's doing too little, keeping too many things from him, thinking too lightly of his goodness. Our mistake certainly is attributing too little to him. I, I seriously doubt the mistake any of us will ever make is thinking too highly of God's goodness and his sovereignty. He's doing way more than we think he is and he has way better plans than we think he does. That has to give you comfort in your life. It has to give you confidence in your faith. And finally, this should be a pretty loud warning to people that don't know the Lord, that don't know God. That think that they will live through their life and that they're good as they compare themselves to other people. And so they will stand before God for judgment when they die. And God's going to be okay with them because they're not after all. We're not like these other people. Well, that would require change in God. God who said he's too holy to look upon evil and to entertain evil in his presence, God who said that he will judge every sin, that would require him to change his mind about that when you come in front of him. And maybe you have enough self-confidence, you think that you'll be good enough to do that in God, but no, because he doesn't change. He is the perfect judge and will always be the perfect judge. He will hold every sin to judgment, and he always has and he always will. Hence, the only hope for judgment is that your sins were attributed to Christ and were given to him and that he suffered in your place. So he can bear the penalty for your sin. That's why there can be eternal life if you're found in Christ. There's no other door, though. There's no other door into heaven. There's no other way around God's judgment than being hidden in Christ. And you should know that because he's the father of lights. And in him, there is no variation. And there will never be a shadow due to change. Lord, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself so clearly in your word. You are a good God, and from you flows good things. We take confidence in your goodness. Even when the clouds of darkness hide you, we know they only hide you from our perspective. Lord, give us the faith to see you at work in all times, in all ways, in all circumstances for our good and for your glory. We know those two are one and the same because your glory is our greatest good. So we're thankful that you desire to reveal yourself to us. You're the father of lights. You're the source of truth and the source of goodness, the source of purity. You've called us to drink from that river. So Lord, help us be focused on you. Help our hearts be filled with you and your goodness. Help us drink long from the river of your light, of your truth. Give us confidence and comfort in trials, knowing that as our mind is fixed upon you, you will bless us as we trust in your goodness. We give you thanks for that promise in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.